the orange cones on the Viam Day. The Viam Day is the way of life, this path of life that God has uh, laid out for us to walk in. And in the Proverbs, uh, Solomon tells his princely sons, hey, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he's gonna lay the road out for you. He's gonna direct your paths. And so we've been trying to talk about that, the will of God, the ways of God, the, the hopes that he has for us as we meet him in our futures. Now, we've talked about it from lots of different ways, but today we want to talk about the orange cones. I, <laughs> I drove, I didn't drive, I flew to Peoria, Illinois, right after this service last week. I just walked off the stage, Eleanor drove me to Clearwater, the airport, uh, St. Pete Clearwater Airport, and I flew up to uh, Peoria, Illinois. I had a great night hanging out with my uh, younger sister and her family, and then the next morning I started driving my mother in her car uh, so that she wouldn't drive it off the road. Uh, anyway... Uh, <laughs> to, uh, to, to, to Eastern Canada. I, I stopped in Bangor, Maine, but we'd, we'd spent three days driving in a car. Who's done that? Anybody like driving that far? What a blast. <laughs> Toyota Corolla, too, just so you know. Anyway, uh, I fit. <laughs> but uh, we were driving along, and, and these things were everywhere. You know why? Because it's May, June, in the, in the Midwest. All the snow is melted, and all the potholes that have been left from the snow are now visible and able to be worked on, and so everything's under construction. It feels like that all over our nation, I'm sure. Every, uh, every highway has to be fixed uh, from time to time, and so uh, if you travel you know, across the bay to your job or on great distances, my heart goes out to you. I do not like the orange cones. Does anybody like the orange cones? I'm not a big fan of the orange cones. And some of us have those uh, great GPS apps now that tell us where there's slowdowns and we can actually navigate around them. I have that. I just don't ever think to uh, look at it because I'm not that detail-oriented. And so I usually find the orange cones the old-fashioned way, right? I just kind of arrive at the slowdown. Orange cones are put out for construction mostly, right? But sometimes they're put out for emergencies, we were driving uh, on the second leg of our drive uh, from Cleveland to Springfield, Massachusetts on I-90 heading east, and uh, the, the entire uh, lanes of traffic both ways stopped. In fact, uh, the westbound lanes emptied, indicating what? There's been an accident, right? And so uh, it took us about uh, 90 minutes to get up to this accident, driving east towards uh, Springfield, and, and, and there it was, jackknife uh, semi-trailer, uh, the, the, the trailer part had caught on fire. And so it had just completely burned to the ground, blocked all the lanes of traffic heading west. And so uh, to get the emergency vehicles up there and stuff like that, they had to cone off the, east, or the eastbound lanes. And so we were all narrowing down. Anyway, and then there's the rubberneckers. Who loves them rubberneckers? Anybody love them rubberneckers? I mean, you got like 10 minutes to look at this thing. I mean, just, you know, take a peek and keep going, bro. Keep going. Sorry. Um, uh, but I, I, I drove past that accident, and who's, who's been in the car the, of the, you know, the, the actual side of the highway that's still open? Don't you feel bad for the folks? They're not, I mean, nothing's moving. It was 20 miles of three lanes of traffic outside of Buffalo, New York, and uh, it was crazy. So um, that, that's what the cones are for. They're slowdowns. They're obstacles. And here's what I deduced on, on this, this drive with my mom. First of all, she's really cool. I still like my mom. But uh, uh, the second thing I realized is that all roads get blocked sometimes. All roads get blocked sometimes. And I knew I was going to be speaking this weekend on uh, the, the way of God, the road that he has paved for us. Uh, and it's especially true of the Viam Day, that there's orange cones on the Viam Day, obstacles that come up. Now, we live in a broken world. Broken things happen. And so in your life and in my life, there's going to be times, periods, where the cones <laughs> just come out, and, and, and we're going to have to slow down 
Uh, we're going to have to uh, pause. We're going to have to um, just hit the brakes and, and, and have to go through things that we were not looking forward to or not intending uh, to see happen in our lives, but they're there anyway. Sometimes uh, the cones come at the hands of other people. Uh, they make decisions that affect us. Our bosses don't need us as employees anymore. Our spouses decide that they want to be with someone else. Our kids uh, turn their backs on everything that they've ever known and, and head in a different direction. We, we react uh, to those cones that people throw in our way. But sometimes uh, it's nobody's fault, there's no real cause, but just things happen like uh, our bodies give out and uh, tests come back where you know, uh, things aren't favorable and, and things are going to definitively change uh, because of the ailment, the illness that we have to fight against. Uh, sometimes uh, we just go through troughs of discouragement and depression and everybody else around us is going on with life and enjoying life and, and we make the effort, we try to make it look good, but on the inside, the cones are up. Uh, we're struggling, it's hard. And I think it's fitting that we talk about this kind of thing on a, on a mission Sunday because all these trips that are going out, we're gonna, we, hopefully you already did pray, we, we pray for them to be successful and for them to be free of any you know, detail mess ups or anything like that, but you know, I've been on the mission trips where you land and your luggage doesn't. Uh, on the mission trips where everybody loved each other the Saturday before you left and hated each other the Wednesday while you were there. That's what happens on youth, some youth trips. I pray not on these at all, all of those going. But all kinds of conflict and trial and struggle can happen as we go on specific mission trips or as we just kind of live out the mission in the, in the worlds that God's given us. And so, you know, we go to work, we go to colleges, we go to, uh, you know, the neighborhoods that we live in, and we decide after maybe a message like this, I'm going to make more of my, you know, my testimony. I'm going to make more of who Jesus is in my life. And we set out to do those things, but it's uncanny how often uh, the cones just come flying out. Our fears, our anxieties. Perhaps we, we have the courage to start a conversation with someone and it goes terribly wrong. And we worry about losing that friendship now. That, that neighbor's gone. Yeah, all kinds of stuff. Today we want to study a guy named Elijah. A guy who experienced incredible victories in his uh, ministry as a prophet. Just saw God do... Uh, Miracle after miracle after miracle. I'll detail them for you here in a second. Uh, but then he came to some cones. He, he came to some real difficulties in his life. And we're just going to examine how God met him in those cone moments. How God interceded on his behalf as things went awry on his volume day. So, today we want to answer this question. Uh, what are the orange cones on the volume day? There's three of them. I only got the two of them last time. I'll put bonus material in my email next week if you want. Okay, but let's talk about Elijah. Elijah climbed this incredible ladder of success in his short, short period of, of appearing in our Bibles. He, he's only really in five chapters in 1 Kings and really only in a chapter and a half in 2 Kings, and then he's one of the only guys who doesn't die. He gets to go straight to heaven. How cool is that? Read it. It's in there. Anyway, uh, it starts out, you know, he just kind of appears. He's called Elijah the Tishbite, and he comes up to a guy 
named Ahab, who is the king of Israel. Now, we're at a period in Israel's history where there's been uh, you know, three major kings, a guy named Saul, David, and Solomon, and the nation was united under their leadership. But after Solomon dies, the nation divides as part of God's judgment for the wickedness of the people of Israel and, and even Solomon and David. And so the nation divides into two kingdoms. One is the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And so a uh, series of kings, like all kinds of coup d'etats. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of an interesting part of your Bibles to read. There's all kinds of like, whoa, really? And, uh, and, but, but these kings come into power, and almost all of them are just complete losers. They're just, uh, they're, they, they, they go into syncretistic practices where they take uh, the, the religion, the faith of the God of Israel, and they kind of combine it with pagan rituals and pagan gods. And that's what's happened in the northern kingdom when Elijah comes on the scene. Uh, uh, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, is a guy named Ahab, uh, and he has married a woman named Jezebel. Jezebel is uh, a priestess. She's a uh, the daughter of a king whose name is actually Baal, and, and Jezebel worships a pagan god named Baal, and Baal is the god of the rains. And so uh, Jezebel has brought Baal worship to Israel, and Elijah is sent by God to let Israel know that Baal's not going to do it. Baal doesn't work. And so this is how he lets Israel know. He sends Elijah to tell Ahab, hey, Ahab, this rain god, this Baal who's in charge of you know, making sure the crops get watered, uh, he's going to be, you know, uh, uh, thwarted. He's not going to be able to do, well, he doesn't exist, but he, I'm going to show you that there's one true God because it's not going to rain in Israel for three years. That's how his story begins. Ahab's not too happy with the prophecy against uh, him, and so Elijah decides, I, I probably shouldn't stick around where uh, Ahab's people are, and so he's led by God to a pool in Siloam, and the miracles start because they're at the pool of Siloam in the midst of a famine, uh, he is provided with water to drink, and he is fed by birds. These ravens fly from the sky and bring him Lunchables. It's in your Bibles. Read it. And on a daily basis, he's, you know, it's like, it's like going to a, a Brazilian steakhouse, you know. Has anybody been to one of those where they come with a big stick of meat and they slice it off? I picture that, you know, the ravens come and being like, prime rib, is that what you do? Uh, but, but he just gets to eat at this pool, and, and that's the, the beginnings of the miracles in Elijah's life. God later on tells him, you know what, Elijah, we're going to move from this pool. We're going we're to head north. We're going to actually head out of Israel proper. You're going to go to the land where Baal is worshipped, a place called Zarephath. Everybody say Zarephath. Gesundheit. And, uh, and while, he, while you're there, you're going to meet this widow. And, and they're going through the same famine, so there's not lots to eat there. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to provide for you all that you need to live as you meet this widow. And so Elijah goes to Zarephath, and he meets this widow, and he says, oh, I was supposed to meet you. And the widow says, well, I'm glad you did, because this is my last day on earth. I'm about to go home, and I'm going to take the last bit of Bisquick I have and the last bit of Wesson oil, and I'm going to make myself some pancakes, and then my son and I are going to lay down, and we're going to die, because that's all we've got left to eat. And Elijah says, well, listen, that's what, not what God told me. In fact, God told me that if, if you will be willing to share of what you have with me to eat, then that box of Bisquick will never run dry, and you'll never run out of oil. And that's exactly what happened. They woke up every morning, there was more Bisquick, bisquick more oil, more pancakes, and they just sustained themselves uh, off of this miraculous provision of God. A little bit later in the story, this woman who had a son, uh, the son dies. I mean, talk about a... Uh, a turn. 
Uh, she's so despondent, she wants to join him in death. And Elijah says, no, 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 not, not, not just yet. Let me, let me pray. Let me talk to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and let's see what he can do. And so he goes in, he lays his body down on this child and, and prays and asks God for his mercy and his miracle. And God provides it. It's, a, it's, one of the, it's the resurrection. It's the first resurrection in the scriptures. And, 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 and here he comes back to life, this little boy. And the woman turns to Elijah, and I don't know if the bisquick was enough, but she says, you know what, your God's my God. I'll never worship another. What incredible miracles. God wasn't done with them yet. This is probably the most popular story in Elijah's uh, you know, account. Uh, he is, he's done in Zarephath. God heads him back to Israel, and he goes to the king one more time, and he says, Ahab, listen, we're just going to settle this. You guys think uh, Baal is this all-powerful God. Uh, God, the real God, has shown you that Baal doesn't control the reins. He does. Uh, but just so that we can finalize this, how about we have you know, kind of this pay-per-view showdown. You get all the prophets of Baal. Uh, we'll, we'll put an, uh, a, a, a cow, uh, a sacrifice on this big altar. They'll pray for Baal to set it on fire. I'll do the same thing. I'll pray for God to set mine on fire, and whoever sets their, their carcass on fire wins, right? And so I guess that's how they did things back then. I'd go play one-on-one with someone. You know, that's how I'd settle things. But, uh, but this is what they did. And so... <laughs> uh, uh, Ahab says, hey, listen, there's 450 prophets of Baal. Do you mind if I throw in the 400 prophets of this other false god named Asherah? And he's like, yeah, so 950 prophets versus one. And they get there. It's one of my favorite parts of the whole Bible because Elijah is a man after my own heart. He talks smack. He just, he just gives the prophets of Baal and Asherah the gears. Because they're out there, they're praying to this false god and asking him to bring this fire down so that it'll, you know, ignite this, this sacrifice. And, and Elijah's just over there saying, hey, maybe you should pray louder. Maybe he doesn't hear you. A little bit later he says, hey, maybe he's in the can. It's in your Bibles. It's right there. Maybe he's relieving himself. It's how, you know, the English Standard Version sanitizes it. But he's asking, maybe he's on the, maybe, you know, he's, yeah. Maybe he's asleep. Hey, scream louder. Maybe he's asleep. So these, these almost a 1,000 guys, they get together and they scream and holler and yell. And, of course, nothing happens. And if you know the story, which I know a lot of you do, but it's still a fun one to tell. Uh, Elijah says, okay, you guys are done. You're hoarse. My turn. And he asks for a bunch of water to be brought in during a famine, which I think is really cocky. And he says, let's pour it over my sacrifice, pour it over all the stones, everything, all the wood, and then let's dig a trench around my sacrifice, around my altar, and let's fill that up with that water too. And then he just prays a simple prayer. He says, God, do your stuff. And God does his stuff. And the fire uh, consumes the sacrifice. It consumes the wood. It burns the rocks. Do you know how hot a fire has to be to burn rocks? And it licks up all the water. The people who are watching the pay-per-view, the, the live audience, uh, they were uh, so uh, just amazed by the power of the one true God that they uh, aligned themselves with Elijah and they actually fulfilled a, a command that was uh, issued in the Old Testament that, that if there were false prophets found in Israel, they needed to be stoned to death until they were, they were gone. And so uh, the people turned on the false prophets of Baal and Asherah and they ended their lives that day according to God's uh, law. Uh, the last part of it is, is that at the end of chapter 18, uh, Elijah gets to be the, the good news teller in this case. He, he gets to go to Ahab and say, hey, it's going to rain. And Ahab's like, what do you mean? It hasn't rained for three years. He's like, yeah, it's going to rain. 
And there's a whole series, seven times I go out and look at this little cloud, but eventually this little cloud turns into a big storm cloud and the rains fell on Israel and everybody rejoiced. And Elijah was so psyched, read it, he was so psyched that even as Ahab was getting ready to take his victory lap and ride his chariot down to a city called Jezreel uh, so that he could take credit, Elijah, under the power of the Holy Spirit, outruns the guy's chariot and he beats him to town so that he can make sure the credit goes to God alone. Yeah, pretty great, pretty great climb. Uh, But this is what happens next. Look at chapter 19. It says, uh, now chapter 19, verse one, if you would, yeah. Ahab told Jezebel uh, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So uh, Ahab uh, relates what happens on this mountain called Mount Carmel. Uh, And then Jezebel, Hearing that, that all of her prophets from her false religion had been slain, she says, uh, sends a messenger to Elijah and uh, says, hey, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of those prophets by this time tomorrow. She throws down the gauntlet. You're on a clock, Elijah. If I find you in town in the next 24 hours, I'm gonna kill you like you and the rest of those Israelites killed my prophets. And if I don't do it, this is my promise. May someone do to me, may someone kill me if I don't kill you. Spoiler alert, someone is gonna kill Jezebel, just like those prophets. It's coming later in the story. Read on. Uh, But Elijah hears this. Now, if I had climbed the ladder with God like Elijah had, I think, well, I won't even put me in this. I think most people, having seen what they'd seen, fed by ravens, you know, uh, Bisquick doesn't run out, uh, raise a, a little boy from the dead, uh, and defeat almost a thousand prophets in a, in a cook-off, right? I mean, things are going well. And if, if this challenge, this threat <clears throat> had been issued to Elijah at this time in life, my, my guess would be that Elijah would say, Jezebel, Bring it on. I serve the one true God. There's no way that your plans are gonna thwart his. Do your worst. Can't wait to see what he does. (laughs) But that's not what happens. Look what it says in verse three. It says that Elijah was afraid. And he was so afraid, he arose. And he ran for his life. He ran as far as this place called Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And there he left his servant there. So these two guys, upon hearing this threat from the queen of Israel, uh, decide, we gotta get out of town. And they don't just run out of town, just so you know, they're in the north in a city called Jezreel, and they run to a place called Beersheba, which is in the south, in the, in the, in the nation of Judah. It's not just in the south, it's on the very southern edge, edge of the nation of Judah. It's about 75 miles through the desert that Elijah and his servant journey. They get to the the place that's called Beersheba, and he leaves his servant there, and it tells us in verse four uh, that he himself went another day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree when he got there. So Elijah keeps running. He probably leaves his servant there because, listen, if they catch you and you know where I am, you'll be able to squeal on me, so you need not know where I am. Let's split up, I'll keep running. He finds himself under a broom tree. Anybody got a broom tree in your yard? Anybody got one of those? Yeah. It'd be cool if we could grow brooms. That'd be really sweet. That'd be like a great business. Uh, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's not that kind of tree. There's not real brooms on it. It's just like a shrub. 
Sometimes they grow to be 8 to 12 feet high, but in a, in a very arid, dry world uh, like the Middle East, uh, they're usually just little itty-bitty things, like the ones that you'd line your yard with. And Elijah is so parched, so tired, so exhausted from running, that he just crawls under this itty-bitty shrub, and he says these words. He crawls under a broom tree, and he asked that he might what? Kill me, Lord. He said this, it is, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Anybody ever said that before? As you've been on your volume day, on your walk with God through life, anybody said, that's enough, Lord. Pat it up too. Everybody's got to hear. Does everybody know that? Everybody's got to hear. Yours might be different than mine, might be in a different area than mine, but everybody in some part of life has an up to here. And they just turn to God and they're like, that's it, I can't do it anymore. I've had enough. Maybe you're not suicidal like Elijah or like his fathers, as you referenced there. Fathers like Moses. Read his story in Exodus and Numbers. Moses led these children of, uh, of God out of, Israel, out of Egypt, the Israelites, and, and then they, they proceeded to complain for like 40 years. And there were several, a couple different times that Moses in his life just said, God, kill me. Just kill me now. I don't want to talk to these people anymore. Job, anybody heard of Job? He's this guy in the Bible, and he goes through just incredible loss. First couple chapters, he's doing fine, but then in chapter three, you know what he says? Oh, that I was never born. Oh, that I was dead. Yeah, who knew that the volume day would bring up suicidal thoughts, especially for these great leaders in the story uh, of our Bibles, but it does. And Elijah lays under a, a bush and says, kill me now. And it says in verse 5, the first part of it, uh, that he laid down and he slept under a broom tree. Have you been there? Have you been to that point where you're just like, this is enough? Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're like asking God, I don't know how I'm going to do tomorrow because I've had it up to here. What do we do in those situations? Most of us, we just soldier on, paint the smile on, act like nothing's wrong. But like a cancer, the angst and the, the, the fear and the, the pain, it just continues to eat at us. What, what do we do in those situations? Well, I think the first thing that we need to do in those situations is recognize that God has not left us. That he's still there in the midst of our pain. That he, he loves us, he's for us and not against us. And the best thing that we can do in this uh, orange cone situations and in every situation in life is to let God meet our needs on this journey called the Vitam Day. Look what, uh, look what happens. Once again, uh, another rung on the ladder, if you will, as Elijah's running from Jezebel. It says, behold, verse five, an angel touched him as he's sleeping under this broom tree, and he says, hey, Elijah, get up. There's something to eat. And he's like, there's nothing to eat out here. It's not in the text, but that's what I picture him doing. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. This had to hearken uh, back to the days that he was by the pool of Siloam and the ravens were feeding him, or back to the days where every morning the bisquick was there. He's, he's just getting a, a reissue of the same needs being met in his situation, and there an angel of the Lord is coming to him and saying, hey, let's eat, bro. It's been days since you've had anything. Let's eat. It says, uh, 
uh, that he ate and he drank, and then he, he either ate and drank so much or he was still so tired from the run that he just laid down again. I, I like to think that he ate to his satisfaction, like, like Thanksgiving. Anybody ever eaten way too much and needed a nap during the football game? Anybody know what I'm talking about? The first one's just the Lions. Who cares, right? I mean, the Cowboys are on later. <clears throat> but you just lay down. And so he takes another rest, and it goes on, and it says the angel of the Lord came to him a second time, and he touched him, and he said, hey, Elijah, get up. Let me, uh, as God's messenger, sustain you. Let me provide for you what you need. Arise and eat. And then he says these amazing words. Can you go back for me? Arise and eat, for the journey is what? Okay, everybody look at me. (laughs) I know church is a place you come to to get pumped up and reminded and excited, but let me discourage you. Ready? Here we go. Your life is too great for you. The stuff that you're going to face is way beyond your ability to face it. Everybody hear me? I'm not not up here cursing you. I'm not up here trying to say that your life's going to stink or or that your life does. But what I am telling you is the truth. Life is going to be too big for you, not just sometimes, but a lot. It's just the nature of humanity. We're going to run into things that we're just not equipped to handle. And, And so we do our best, don't we? We try to uh, offset the pains or offset the troubles with, you know, making enough money so that we can pay for the best things in the midst of them or, or, or by having as many experiences as we can so that we can, you know, draw from those hedonistic tendencies. And, 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 and we, we try to compensate all that we can, but in the end, life is just too big. At certain times, it's just going to be too hard and it's going to go beyond what we can handle And we're going to need to lay down under our broom trees and just wait for God. And we're just going to have to trust that God's going to take care of us. We're just going to have to look to him for what we need for the journey. Because it's only he that can get us around the obstacles. This first uh, cone I would call uh, exhausted opposition. Exhausted opposition. Jezebel comes against Elijah um, she actually, last service, I'm going to say what I always wanted to say in all three services, she totally knew what she's doing because if she could get Elijah to run, guess what uh, happens to Elijah's movement? All these people who had seen him win on Mount Ararat and stuff, uh, they think that he's a fraud, right? And so she could have just secretly gone and killed him. That wouldn't have been that hard. But instead she issues the threat and she gets, I think that's how our adversary works, just so you know. Like the worst thing uh, to happen to Christians is Christians. You know, that sounds bad, but, but if, if, if our adversary can get Christians to do unchristian things or to run in fear from, from the trials that we face, it just kind of invalidates the whole Christian message. Are you with me? So I think that's what Jezebel was up to. She was in opposition to Elijah, and it just wore him out. And who's, anybody in here, anybody want to admit you're worn out? Anybody, want to, anybody worn out? A couple hands going up. It happens in life. We get to our enough. But thank God that he sends what we need for every situation. I believe that entirely. That may not be what you want, because like, you know, the great Saint Mick said, you can't always get what you want. It'll get to some of you. Anyway, uh, if you try sometimes to get what you need, it's an old rock song, Rolling Stones. Who's with me? Okay, you got there. You can't always get what you want. Because if we always got what we want, it'd be a horrible world. I'll explain that in some other sermon. 
But God will always give us what we need. He'll always give us enough, for I've had enough. He'll always give us what we need for our journey. The second cone is this, defeated isolation. Defeated isolation. So here's Elijah. He's gotten all this food, and uh, it tells us in verse 8 that basically uh, he ate the second meal, and then he starts heading south again. He's, he's continuing to run in the other direction from Jezebel. He goes 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Anybody remember else? Any, anybody else in the scriptures who went 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness? Yeah, Jesus did. Yeah, so, so just like Jesus, he just he continues to head south until he gets to a place called, well, let's read about it. He arose and he ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and for 40 nights. And in verse 9, it tells us uh, that uh, uh, he came to a cave and he lodged in it. He, he was, oh, I, can you go back to verse eight? I forgot the line that I wanted to say. Verse eight says this. Uh, I'm testing him up there. He came to, the, to a place called Horeb. It's the Mount of God. Anybody know what Horeb is? Maybe I'll give you the other name for Mount Horeb. Mount Sinai. Anybody heard of Mount Sinai? Oh, yeah, lights are going on. Because Mount Sinai is the same mountain where this guy Moses was just minding his own business, watching some sheep, and then all of a sudden God lit a bush on fire and started talking to him. And that started the whole story of the Exodus. And then uh, Moses went and goes to uh, uh, Egypt and rescues the children of Israel from Egyptian slavery and leads them out of Egypt. And then they're kind of wandering around that southern part of the Sinai Peninsula next to the Red Sea. And he comes again to the same place that the bush caught on fire. And he's standing up on this same mountain, Mount Sinai, and God comes to him and he issues the Ten Commandments there on that mountain. It's a pretty big mountain in the story of Israel. And so this is where Elijah finds himself, the Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And what does he do? He, he goes into a cave, verse 9, and he, he just sets up camp there. And behold, the voice of the Lord came to him, and he said to them uh, these words, what are, you, what are you doing here? Parents, who said that one to their kids a couple times? What are you doing? And what are you doing here? I told you three hours ago to turn that off and go cut the grass. Yeah, we, we have those... Conversations. It's a question issued uh, in the midst of someone's rebellion. What are you doing? What are you doing here? Because Elijah's not supposed to be running 40 days into the wilderness. He's, he's not supposed to be putting distance between him and the, the challenge uh, that was ahead of him. And so Elijah gets a chance to answer, and he's kind of pertinent. Uh, he says in verse 10, he says, uh, I've been very jealous for the Lord. Read I deserve way better than I'm getting. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. And, and here's the deal. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, God, and they've thrown down your altars, and they've killed all the other prophets with the sword. And I, even I, lots of eyes in this one. Has anybody noticed this? I, even I, only am left. And, and they, the people who don't believe in you, the people who have thrown down your altars and killed your prophets and, and who have forsaken your covenants, they seek my life. They want to take it away. This is like, like grade A pity party right here, right? Elijah's like, you know, God comes to him in the cave and he's like, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, I'll tell you what I'm doing here. He goes all teenager on God, right? He's like, oh, I'll let you know what's up. This is exactly what's up. <laughs> I deserve better and I don't have it. And, and you know what? I am the only one in this house. <laughs> yeah, uh, Elijah was walking around with this big mirror in front of his face. 
and the only one he could see was himself. And you know what he did? He, he was so focused on himself that it completely warped his truth. Well, I just got done telling you that uh, at, at Mount Ararat, several uh, thousand uh, Israelites, the, the account tells us, joined Elijah in slaying the prophets of Baal. There were lots of people who had turned back towards God, but he doesn't mention them. In another part of his story, there had been prophets hidden in a cave by another guy named Obadiah, not the prophet probably, maybe. But uh, anyway, there were other prophets that hadn't been slain. I mean, there's, but, but this is what he did. He'd gotten anxious, and his anxieties had proven anxieties, like I told you earlier. He, he had basically convinced himself uh, of the whole, and he had lost, in perspective, the donut, and he was just living in the negative. We get, does anybody do that sometimes? Things get so bad, it's just everything is painted by that brush. This stinks, so everything stinks. This is hard, so everything's hard. We taught our son Ben to, to ride a bike when he was a young boy, and Ben is exceedingly intelligent and very pessimistic sometimes. So even as a five or six-year-old, he was very eloquent in expressing his feelings. So the whole time that Eleanor and I were holding the back of his bike as he's you know, learning to pedal this thing and, and ride his bike, he is assuming the worst and telling us what's going to happen in, in each step of how this is going to go. Like, like, I'm going to fall, I'm going to fall, I'm going to break my arm, I'm going to break my arm, I'm going to have to go to the ER, and they're going to give me shots, and I'm going to get sick, and I'm going to miss school, and I'm going to miss school, and I'm not going to go to college, and I'm not going to get a job, and it's all over. <laughs> and we're like, whoa, this is six, right? I mean, what's going to happen next? Because he had, in his mind, foreseen an unfavorable future. And he had allowed it to completely control his reality. Now, the funny thing was, the whole time that he's saying all these things, Eleanor and I are running behind him, he's riding a bike. We're letting go of the seat, and there's periods in his pedaling where he's on his own, but he can't enjoy this incredible joy that everybody, hopefully in here, has experienced of learning to ride your bike for the first time. The victory that brings to a young life, right? He can't enjoy it because he is in a fear of the impending broken arm and how it's going to ruin his future in business. That's why Satan's greatest tool against the church is fear. Because if he can get you afraid, he can get you anxious. And if he can get you anxious, he can convince you that God is not able. And if you think God is not able, then God is useless to you. You're not able, as it tells us in James, to pray believing. When you ask for wisdom, to pray believing because you don't believe. Because you've convinced yourself of the whole and you've lost the donut. So, what do we do when this cone comes up? I'll leave you with this. Well, we let God remind us of, our, of his power and his love. Both are important, but if I had, I had one, I'd, I'd pick his love. And just so you know, in your circumstances, God may not give you what you want. He not, may not re- rescue you them from them, rescue you th- from them, but he may and, and will provide whatever you need to get through them. He may not come with this calamitous, miraculous, you know, retrieval, but he will always be there in intimacy with you. Let God remind you of his power and love. Look what it says. He said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. So he, he tells Elijah to come outside from the cave and, and, and watch. I'm going to show you some important things. If I had more time, I'd, I'd show you that Elijah never comes out of the cave. That's how depressed he is. He just stays in the cave. But he can still see through the mouth of the cave what's going on. And this is what goes on. And behold, the Lord passed by. Uh, 
in much the same way perhaps that he passed by Moses on the same mountain. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the historian here says, but, but the Lord was not in the wind. Now he showed him his power and was manifest, but, but the Lord didn't tend to or, or attend to Elijah in that wind. It goes on and it says, the, the wind was followed by an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, the, the earthquake was followed by a fire. This would have been certainly in uh, you know, Elijah's memory. He had just seen fire from heaven on Mount Ararat at that sacrifice showdown. But uh, it says the Lord wasn't in the fire either. In fact, it says, and after the fire, uh, and it simply says, um, there was stillness, there was silence. The Hebrew words kind of uh, connote that, that there, was, there was communication without there being said anything. We've uh, called it a still small voice. Anybody heard that in church before? Here, the English Standard Version calls it uh, a low whisper. And I don't know what God whispers to you when the cones show up in your life, but here's what God whispers to me. Maybe this is what he whispered to Elijah. He says things like this, Mark, I got this. Mark, my promises are true. I will never leave you or forsake you. You are my child. Sometimes in my life, that's all I need. Just the reminder that God's got me. That whatever it is that we have to face, whatever trial that comes up, we'll go through it. I don't know how it's going to turn out. But through it all, God's got me. Sometimes he shows, shows off in amazing ways. It's not necessarily fires from heaven or winds or earthquakes, but he, he does miraculous things in all of our lives, and I think a lot of them we miss because we're like, oh, that was cool, and, and, and we don't realize that this is the hand of God interceding on our behalf. He does a lot of those things, but, but the thing that I love most about my father is that he is the affirmer, the confirmer of his presence in our lives as we go through the valleys and the difficulties that we face. The story goes on, but I'm gonna stop here. And I'm just gonna say once again, uh, these show up in your life. The obstacles, the hard things, the slowdowns, the full stops. If they aren't here now, they're coming. Again, yay! What uplifting preaching. Here's the uplifting part. Even though these are inevitable, God's present, presence is unshakable. It's un, he won't falter, he won't fail. He is ours, we are his, he is with us if we are in Christ, and that will never change. Praise be to God. So now may you and I Trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and lean not on our own understandings. In all of our ways, may we acknowledge him and allow him to direct our paths. Will you stand with me as we pray? <clears throat> Lord, we are grateful for your goodness. It is visible all the time, even if we don't see it, even if we're stuck in a cave of our depression and discouragement and defeat, even if we are terrified by what stands in front of us and we are running far from you, um, you are ever-present, ever-powerful, all-knowing, 
Um, and you stand at the ready. You, you, well, your plans won't be thwarted overall. We, we know that. But you stand at the ready uh, to lead us through everything that we face in life. Our victories, our defeats. You, you, you are the guide that we need to look, for, look to and look for. And so my prayer for us simply this morning is we continue to, uh, we walk out of here, we grab our cone of ice, we talk to each other, but then life picks up again and we have tonight and then we go to work tomorrow and we do another week. Here's my prayer for us as we go. Would you scatter us, Lord, uh, as missionaries of your gospel? Would you use us uh, so that we can make a difference in this world? But would you affirm to us that you are for us and not against us, that you are able where we are not. Will you minister to us and provide us our needs on this journey, God? Will you show your power and your love to us so that we can continue to move forward in bringing you the glory that you deserve as you grant us the life that you desire? That's my prayer for us as a church, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.